This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Global Discipleship Initiative hosted a track called The Power of Microgroups to Transform and Multiply Disciples. Greg Ogden facilitated this track for their team, and he has provided a quick one-page summary of how they advise people to do these microgroups. They spell it all out in just one page, and that one-page PDF is available for download for free through discipleship.org. So go online and download their free PDF on how to do microgroups at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. Now here's the track session for Global Discipleship Initiative. Good afternoon, everyone. Are we alive? Okay, all right. Just want to make sure that uh, it's still early. <laughs> so well, let me lead us in prayer as we, we get started this afternoon. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather for the historic nature of this conference that brings us together for the common hearts we share for uh, intentional discipling. And Lord, I just pray that what we do in this uh, time together will be able to equip us more deeply to fulfill uh, your great commission of going and make disciples of, of all nations. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me just start with uh, some introduction. You can see some d data on the screen there in terms of who I am. Uh, my name is Greg Ogden. Good to be with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, I'll have Ralph Rittenhouse, my partner here, introduce himself in a moment. Uh, so uh, for about 38 years, I was involved in professional ministry as a pastor. Five years within that, kind of parenthetical, was uh, directed to the Doctor of Ministry program at Fuller Seminary. Uh, retired in March of 2012. I no longer get paid to be a Christian, um, like some of you nothing. do. I'm good for nothing, yes. So uh, moved from Chicago to, to Monterey, California. Haven't noticed any difference at all uh, between the two. Uh, beautiful setting that we get to be in and enjoy. So um, during these retirement years, uh, or as I like to call them, redeployment years, uh, been able to just kind of focus in on those things that I'm most passionate about. Obviously, this is at the heart of it uh, in terms of making disciples and uh, the partnership that Ralph and I share, as we will tell you about as we, as we go on uh, with this particular uh, workshop today. I'm married to that lovely woman on the screen there, Lily. Uh, we've been married for 48 years. Uh, I like to say that she had to come halfway around the world to meet me, or because she was born in Shanghai, China. Uh, her father was converted through Southern Baptist Missions in China and uh, came to study to be a pastor in 1948, about a year before um, Mao Zedong uh, took over and shut down China. And he was intending her father was intending to come back to China and be a pastor there, but that obviously was not going to be possible. So finally, the family was able to be reunited in 1955 and come to the, to the States uh, when the immigration laws changed and displaced persons could be reunited with their families. And so that's how my wife got here at age eight, and uh, we met as students at UCLA, and, and we have lived happily ever after. Thank you. Not. <laughs> Anybody married here in the room? Um, but mostly, uh, that's the case. And certainly, these are the gravy years uh, for our, our married life and all. Uh, we only have one daughter, uh, but w w we say to her, when we reach perfection, we stopped. So uh, Amy is our daughter. She's a pediatrician, lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. She's married to a pediatrician. They both have subspecialties in their fields of endeavor. They're connected to the University of Utah. So my daughter is a pediatric rheumatologist. And her husband is a pediatric infectious disease specialist. But as I like to say, forget them. Uh, it's about grandkids. That's right. Uh, so. And so uh, we have Claire and Dylan, and there they are. Uh, now, now let's hear a little, aww. Okay, all right, thank you. So that's my little family, and uh, we're going to be spending the month of December with them in Utah. It's going to be a little colder than Monterey. Uh, but that's uh, a little bit about me. So, Ralph, come up and uh, share a little bit about yourself before we get into the content of the day. 
I was born in Miami, Florida, um, and my dad was a pastor, Southern Baptist pastor, and I grew up in a pastor's home. I had a couple of siblings, three siblings actually, an older brother and two, two sisters, and uh, we got to have uh, dinner last night with one of my sisters and her husband who live here in Nashville. Um, but I went on Campus Crusade staff after graduating from college and spent 14 years on Crusade staff and then uh, decided God was calling me back into the pastorate. So I went to uh, Camarillo, California, and that's a beautiful uh, city that's up the coast about an hour north of LAX, uh, almost to Santa Barbara, that little chain of just city after city going up the coast there. And I was there for uh, 27 years as the pastor. We pretty much started the church, just a handful of people when we got there. But we were doing church in a very typical way. And then uh, we discovered that we were not doing a very good job in discipleship. I ran across some material that Greg had written. Um, we decided we would try it. We did a little stealth project. We didn't tell anybody what we were doing. I started a group. My administrative assistant, a gal, started a group, and a couple other guys on my staff started groups. And they were discipling in gender-specific quads, which is a characteristic of our methodology. And those groups just began uh, to take off. It takes about a year to go through the material, and after the first year, the groups multiplied because that's a part of what's into the, in the material is this multiplication component. They multiplied, and then the next year they multiplied again, and the next year they multiplied again, and I'll tell you more about it tomorrow. Uh, but it just caused a phenomenon, in not only in our church, but in our community, and much further than that. Thanks for being with us. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully you've seen the outline of our topics. Uh, a couple books that uh, are connected to what we'll be doing here, Discipleship Essentials and Essential Guide to Becoming a Disciple. These kind of working companionship with each other. This is the newest book out, less than a year. And uh, it's kind of an on-ramp to discipleship. It's a shorter book, as you can tell, um, between these two. And if somebody needs to start more simply, this is a helpful process. But we'll explain all of this content uh, as we go. And there's a nice section in the Lifeway bookstore for these materials that are available as well. You can see that our title is um, The Power of Microgroups, Groups of Three or Four to transform and multiply disciples. And one of the areas that uh, is often very limited is you hear a lot of principles about discipleship, but very little how-to. How do we do this? How do we make it work uh, in the context uh, of, our, of our church? And so I want to start with, with a story of sort of my aha discovery, as you can see this on your outline, as to where this, this all came from. Uh, I've been introduced to intentional discipleship pretty early in my Christian walk. I'll tell some of that story maybe a little bit later on, but knew that I needed to invest in people if I was to, to make disciples. But the paradigm I had assumed was discipleship was one-on-one -on -one discipleship, one person investing in another, walking alongside uh, another person. And I had had some frustration with that. Again, I'll talk about that a little bit more. But in the really early 80s, I was finishing my Doctor of Ministry degree at Fuller Seminary, and you have to have a final project. I had written a kind of very early version of what later became Discipleship Essentials, and uh, this ministry project was test out some content in the context of relationships. So I had a ministry supervisor uh, at Fuller who was helping me guide the project, and we decided to try the same content in a one-to-one -one relationship, a group of 10, and uh, let's, try, uh, let's try a group of three, see what that's like. And uh, so um, I have been approached by a young man by the name of Eric, uh, who uh, came to me and, and, uh, showed, uh, and asked me if I would, I would mentor him. He had, was two years out of Oregon State University. Uh, he was a young follower of Christ. He asked if I would be his mentor. He was like, what's that? Uh, <laughs> how do I go about that? Um, but I said, well, let, let's do this. Um, I've written this discipleship material, uh, and uh, I, need to, I need some guinea pigs. Would you be willing to be a guinea pig? Let's, let's, if you would be willing to be a part of this, I'll add a third person, and we'll create a group of three, and let's see, see what that's like. Now, in retrospect, Eric was probably not the greatest candidate uh, for this. And two years out of Oregon State University, you'll see a picture of him in a moment. He looked like he had stepped out of a men's fashion magazine, um, having women flock around him, uh, I, I was going to say it was not a problem, but in sense it was a problem. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so 
he was kind of a bit of a fence sitter, but he said he'd be willing to commit himself to this process and see, see where it go. So we began to meet on a regular basis. The three of us stood up at a restaurant uh, midweek um, at noon, bring our notebooks that I had put together, start digging into, you know, what are the implications of following Christ. And we began early on with Jesus' claim on us. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You know, choose, choose life. Well, we weren't too far into the process, probably a number, maybe even a few months, and Eric came to, the other person was Carl and myself, and said, uh, you know, I'm still young, I'm, I'm unattached, um, you know, before I you know, get married and settle down, I think I'm going to quit my job, and I want to spend just the next year traveling the world. And my, my initial response to that was, we're losing this guy. You know, he's just going to follow his wanderlust spirit. He's not really serious about his faith. But at least I'd had enough relationship with him at that point to be able to say to him, uh, Eric, if you are going to do this, and frankly, when I look back in retrospect, I wasn't nearly as bold as I, I should have been, uh, at least uh, find a place where you can settle down in the world in some Christian mission for a month or two because there's some amazing people out there that you need to be exposed to and at least have your heart challenged. Well, it wasn't too long after that that Eric came back and he said, well, guess what? I've changed my plans dramatically. Uh, instead of doing this thing of going around the world, I've signed up to go on to a, a campus crusade mission uh, into Eastern Europe. Uh, and at this time, it was Hungary and Poland. It was before the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism. And uh, so he was going to go kind of surreptitiously into Poland, which was hard to get into at that time. Well, he came back from that summer, and there was no longer any, any fence sitting. He was fully in and regaled us with stories of uh, sharing the gospel in a very you know, difficult situation. Well, he hooked up uh, with a kind of a high school sweetheart when he came back. He was raised in Portland, Oregon. Rehooked up with, with Betsy. Their relationship grew uh, rather rapidly. She was a solid follower of Christ. They were talking about going on to crusade staff and continuing to take people into to Eastern Europe. And uh, the relationship grew so fast that they were engaged to be married fairly quickly. Came to me and asked if I'd be one of the, the officiants at his wedding, along with Betsy's pastor. And of course, I was delighted to be able to do that. But uh, as he was approaching the wedding date, he was having some back problems, some pain. Now, he was starting to ride a motorcycle. I'd been involved in a motorcycle accident and thought maybe it was the motorcycle accident that was the cause of the back pain and went to physical therapy, uh, but that wasn't getting any better. As it turned out, uh, the, Saturday, the Monday before the Saturday of his wedding, uh, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer and the back pain was a tumor pressing up against his spine. Mm -hmm. So fully, what, five, six days before his wedding, he's admitted to the hospital and immediately starts on chemotherapy because of the seriousness of what they found out. So Eric and Betsy had a decision to make. Uh, first one was, should we still get married? Secondly, what it was if the answer is yes, the, the issue is, where should we get married? Well, the answer was yes. And they shifted the wedding from the, the church in Portland to the hospital chapel. So that day comes, uh, and we're kind of all scrunched into a fairly small space, not a whole lot bigger than this space, I don't think. And Eric is wheeled in on his hospital bed. He's got his tuxedo on, on, and the, on his waist up, <laughs> covers up to his waist. We, the wedding party flanks his bed, and uh, Betsy's pastor and I kind of choke our way through the service. And uh, things were not looking great. Uh, after, after the wedding, Eric continued on with his treatments. He was released from the hospital for a time. Came back to the church I was, came down to the church I was serving in Los Angeles. I remember so clearly the day he walked onto the church campus. Uh, was not looking like that robust young man that he had been. He was very gaunt, no hair, knit cap. And, uh, and yet there was kind of this indomitable spirit uh, that was a part of his life. And I remember him quoting to me uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. 
And I saw his outer nature wasting away. His body was obviously taking the toll, but his spirit was, was strong. Well, I got word that he had gone back into the hospital up in, in Portland, that uh, things were not looking good, so I hopped on a plane and went up to see him. And as I was walking into his hospital room that day, as the Lord would have it, some of his high school buddies were there, and they were just exiting. Caught them in the hallway, and uh, one of them said to me, do you know what Eric said? Eric said that this cancer was the best thing that ever happened to him. Can you believe that? <laughs> and uh, no, I don't think Eric was saying, yay, I've got cancer. Uh, but he knew who he had to depend upon, why this cancer drove him to his source of support. I got this note from Eric sometime after that. God is helping me grow closer to him. The cancer has made me realize who I have to depend on. And I've seen through these experiences that when I do call upon God, that he really helps in his way. It may not mean that he will relieve the pain or that he will cure the cancer immediately. It may mean that I die or I live. That doesn't matter. What is important is I keep my eyes on him. And I thought, wow, what a distance this guy had gone from the first time that I met him to this moment. Unfortunately, for those of us who remain behind, Eric died in April the following year of 1986. So his marriage lasted about, about eight months. Uh, I told Betsy, his widow, that I would tell Eric's story when I talked about discipleship. But I also tell it because his story was an introduction to me for these smaller units of discipleship. It's a group of three, a group of four, which we call them micro groups now. And the power of those groups and the kind of quality of life that can happen in those groups that make for transformation and multiplication. That's one of the first things I noticed uh, in terms of the shift from a one-to-one -one relationship to a group of three was just the sheer energy and dynamic of the relationship. And walking out of those times and saying, wow, that was fun. <laughs> that was so exciting. Just to see the kind of interaction that, that occurred, it just made things uh, quite a bit different. So kind of from those early beginnings, I just began to reflect on what was the difference there? Why did that seem so life-giving? What was happening in that size group? So for the last 30 plus years, I've been a kind of a Johnny one note, <laughs> focusing in on these small reproducible groups as a way to see transformation takes place, but also within those groups, empower people to be able to disciple others. It's really a peer mentoring relationship that occurs. It's not hierarchical, as you can, you can see, and we'll describe those, those details uh, as, we, as we go. So um, there's Eric, by the way, and, and Betsy, in terms of that couple a little over 30 years ago. So, um, Chad, if you could pass out the, the handout on um, microgroups and uh, kind of a thumbnail sketch um, that's on this. So when we talk about microgroups, let's just kind of lay, lay a basis of what are we talking about here. What's the, what's the foundation? I may need a copy of that myself. Um, So just to kind of lay, lay out some definitions here so you know what we're, we're talking about and, and what some descriptions are. Everybody have a copy of that with the what, why, how, who, when, where, um, and what we're, what we're meaning. So the ministry that uh, Ralph and I have formed is called Global Discipleship Initiative. It's only been in existence for about 18 months. Uh, now you'll hear a little bit more about that as, as we go along and uh, why we focus on, on this particular context. Um, I've started to refer to these microgroups as kind of the container, uh, the environment, the setting in which discipling uh, can, can perhaps best occur. There's lots of different ways to do things, but this is certainly a way that we have landed on we think uh, works. But what are they all about? 
under what? One person prayerfully invites two or three others to join them on a journey of maturing in Christ as well as learning to disciple others. As you will see when we look at the covenant uh, in Discipleship Essentials, from the get-go, from the very beginning, people are having planted in their minds that this is not about their own, just their own growth in Christ, but you are being equipped then to disciple others as well. At the end of this process, uh, you will then go out and invite two or three others to join you in that journey of discipleship, and you will be the lead person taking people through that, that process as well. So you simply learn by doing. You learn by having the experience of what it's all about. We don't have any separate training programs for disciple leaders. And keeping those groups small uh, means you don't really have to have that lo a lot of expertise in being the point person. The larger the groups you have, the more specialized training you have to have with small group life. The less, the smaller they are, you're having a conversation. <laughs> and uh, you're just keeping the ball moving. Why do we do this? Uh, since the mission of the church is to make disciples, we need a specific way to do that. With the experience of over 30 years, we found that this is the most effective means for the average person to accelerate their growth and then by experience learn to reproduce others. Uh, oftentimes, discipleship programs, uh, especially if the groups are larger, uh, the number of people that can be in leadership gets reduced because you have to have a certain specialized kind of person and ability uh, with certain kind of skills. We're trying to, to kind of uh, universalize the experience, bring it down to the most common denominator le level as possible so that everybody can get involved in the process and be able to lead a conversation. That. And so the how-to. Uh, how? Uh, form a covenant to meet weekly around a discipleship curri curriculum such as discipleship essentials, growing in transparency while applying God's word honestly to the growing edges of your life. Um, we've heard already a lot about transparency and openness and sharing honestly about ourselves is an important ingredient. When we look at the environments of, of these microgroups in the next session, we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit more fully in terms of why that is such an important element. But disciple-making is fundamentally a relational process of lives sharpening lives. Intentionality of regular gathering shifts our priorities by making this a centerpiece of, of the week. Uh, I like to say that this whole discipleship process is really um, profoundly simple. If you get people to commit themselves to something weekly and show up weekly, you have aligned their lives in a different way than it was before. You're having them pay attention to something they haven't been paying attention to before. Uh, and so uh, I, Kurt Thompson in his book, The Anatomy of the Soul, says that we need to pay attention to what we are paying attention to. And, uh, but you could say it another way. When you get people to pay attention to what they're supposed to pay attention to, gee, amazing how that happens in terms of life change that occurs and, and takes place uh, like that. Who is involved? Pursue those of the same gender who seem to have an openness to explore all that they can be in Christ, regardless of their level of maturity. Uh, one of the questions we get a lot is, you know, should we get people all of all the same level of maturity in a group? Same age level. Um, I frankly think it's nice to have all kinds of different levels of maturity and age, and it makes it a more enriching experience. But uh, same gender, women with women, men with men uh, in, in these groups. And what's the primary reason for that? Openness and honesty that can occur uh, much more readily uh, because of, of the same sex uh, specifics. Uh, when? Uh, these last two items are very culturally specific. We do a lot of ministry in other countries. And the way we gather in the Western world and the way people can gather in Nepal or in Romania uh, is very different than here. But what we suggest in the United States or Western countries is carve out 90 minutes a week at a time available to the, the people in that group. And the value, the value of having three or four together is usually you can find something in your weekly schedule that you can all protect and show up on a regular basis. So I think probably most of our groups meet early in the day, uh, especially for men if they're going off the work in the, in the day, it's probably better. Especially and if you have men with young children at home, most men do not want to go out for another evening um, to, away from the kids that they've been a part of all day, uh, maybe women as well. So carve out 90 minutes a week, make that a part of your covenant, and uh, show up regularly. <laughs> and then where? Uh, 
basically, again, this is a cultural issue in terms of where you can meet. But again, on our place, our United States, uh, meet somewhere where you can share private things and you don't worry about being overheard. That's simply the, the principle. If you're trying to develop honesty, you don't want to have perhaps too public a space where other people can hear what's going on. Uh, so you feel self-conscious. Uh, so those kind of things. Uh, so that's just kind of a quick overview. Uh, I just wanted to have a, kind of a bit of a baseline so you knew what we were talking about right from the, from the get-go. Um, questions, comments about what you have before you here at this point? Yeah, right. So if, if you already have groups going, you want to plug someone new in, does that work well if you're in midstream? Do you need to start a new group? You need to start a new group, generally. Um, essentially, the, these, these are one kinds of... Could you repeat that, sorry? Sorry, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> if, uh, if the groups are already going, uh, do you start, add somebody in midstream, or do you start a new group, I think is what I heard you say. Um, generally, the groups kind of have a closed covenant for the period of time that they are together because of the level of honesty and the sharing of story and the journey that you're on. It's really difficult to add people midstream because uh, you've missed all this that has gone gone before. So it's better, to, I think, to, to start a new group. Yeah. How many weeks? Uh, well, I would say the, if you're doing Discipleship Essentials, the, the lessons are, there are 25 lessons. Does that mean 25 weeks? No. Uh, it means, um, we say the average is year, a year to a year and a quarter, uh, because as we'll talk about more as we go here, uh, the groups are about relationship. It's not about charging through curriculum. It's not like getting 25 lessons done in 25 weeks. That's not the point. Uh, the point is you're developing a life together and you're processing that content based upon the maturity level of the people, the issues that are going on in people's lives during that time. Uh, you're caring for each other. That could mean that somebody gets ill. It could mean that a relationship, marriage relationship is struggling. It could mean that a child has gone off the rails. So you pause, obviously, during that time to care for each other as, as you go. Sometimes you'll set aside any, any content at all because of the nature of some emergency taking place in someone's life. So it's about the relationship in terms of the dynamics of what, what takes place there. Yeah? Do you ever see them going on for a period of years, or is it, or is it you're thinking there's a shorter end time? There's a, there's a short, it should be a shorter end time than that. If it's gone on for a period of years, then you're, we're competing with two different values here. One is the you're trying to develop close community so you can be trustworthy and honest with each other. Obviously, when people get a hold of that and they find it to be a life-giving, they want to hold on to it, don't they? I mean, that's always the challenge with small groups. But the other value that you're holding on to is multiplication. This is about you being equipped to disciple others. And so moving out beyond your own comfort zone and investing in others and making the invitation to have people join you. So if you're going on for years, it's, it's, it's defeating the purpose. Okay. Let, let me repeat what you're saying here. So you've been doing this. Uh, there's four sections in, in the book. You're taking one section uh, for each, uh, four sec sections per chapter, and you're taking one each week. And so taking four weeks to go through a chapter. So we end up with a two-year. Okay, you end up with a, a two-year process. The other okay, you're talking about the Essential Guide book, the, the shorter one. Uh, so you're, you're taking, going through that a little more rapidly because it's a simpler material. Okay. Um, we want you to talk with each other. Uh, as you know, we think quads are important. Unprocessed content doesn't get us anywhere if we simply listen to us during this time. So um, you can see a discussion questions that's on your sheet as well, on your outline. Uh, why might a microgroup of three or four be an ideal environment for transformation and multiplication? Compare it to the dynamics of one-on-one -on -one relationship in a group of ten. Um, this is a, we've got tight space here. Uh, in terms of doing this, but we were hoping you could get into groups of four, if you can figure out how to jockey your chairs a little bit, uh, introduce yourself to each other. We've got a group of four here that I think would work well, another group of four here. Thank you for engaging that. Before we uh, hasten on here, uh, observations. What's uh, some insights that you talked about in your groups that uh, would be helpful for the others of us did you hear somebody say something good? Well, then you can tell us what that person said. Okay. Uh, what observations do you have around the first question there? Why might this be a 
good optimum environment? How, it, how would it differ from a one-on-one -on -one relationship and, I say, a group of 10? I chose that because that's kind of the traditional small group size that we, 8 to 12, that kind of thing. We, we had willingness to sh open up and share. Willingness to open up and share. More of a tendency, when, unless you're with a bunch of people, it less of a tendency. Yeah, so the more op willingness to open up and share, the more people you have, the less of a tendency you're going to really get down to at least the nitty-gritty stuff in, in people's lives. Yeah, you can go deeper. Go deeper with that, that smaller smaller group. That And that, we're going to say that's really one of the foundational elements for transformation, unless you get to that place of sharing who you are with others uh, and applying the truth of God's word at that point, then transformation doesn't take place. It's just information transfer at that. Yeah. Yes? We found it. Okay, so the camaraderie that comes from that smaller unit that leads to trust uh, and then the kinds of things that you can t articulate to each other, either on a conversational level about the truth content or things about your own personal life. Right. I think you had a comment too, did you? No? Okay, that's right. <laughs> okay, okay. So you're comparing the one-on-one -on -one relationship versus the groups of three or four, and uh, you know somebody might you know kind of buffalo you by saying that nah, it's really not a problem, but others can say. And one-on-one -on -one eh, yeah. is going to be a hierarchical relationship. Yes. Right. That's part of the issue is that uh, when we look at the dynamics, and actually one of the reasons why I shifted from the one-on-one -on -one to the, the smaller group was. I saw a dependency relationship constantly de developing in that in that setting. So a teacher, student, one who knew something versus one who did not know something, and uh, how how difficult it was for the person in the receiving position, in a sense, to turn around and then disciple others. Uh, and that gap widens, frankly, if it's a pastor parishioner relationship, because pastors have been to seminary and know all kinds of stuff, you know. So. Um, well, good. Thank you. I just want to plant that kind of in your mind here. Let's go on in the outline that you have before you. And just to remind us about Jesus making disciples in a relational setting, um, probably, it's probably not something you need to have repeated a whole lot in terms of the, what was Jesus' model of how he went about making disciples. Uh, but we see in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, if you have your Bibles, turn to that quickly. Um, Jesus says, on one of those days, excuse me, Luke says, on one of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them who he also designated apostles. Uh, so, seemingly, it's very central to Jesus' entire strategy of how he was going to build his ministry was this investment in a few. Uh, this was a, a demarcation moment. Scripture says he spent all night in prayer. Uh, when I read that, out of Luke, it's kind of like the bells go off. Okay, this is important. Pay attention. Something's going to happen the next day that's going uh, to be real critical uh, for Jesus' ministry. Uh, we could probably spend some time uh, speculating about what Jesus was praying about uh, in anticipation to bringing that larger entourage of disciples to him and choosing from that, that group. Um, I, I kind of jokingly say, Lord, three years with Peter, really? <laughs> sure about that? Um, my guess is he wasn't kind of still trying to decide who the 12 were. I think that was probably pretty well set in his mind. But he was probably praying for what they would become under his tutelage and leadership and in, in that way. And looking to the end where he was going to be transferring that ministry to, to his disciples. So... Uh, if we were to answer the question, well, what were some of the strategic reasons why Jesus focused on a few, and don't worry about the number 12 at this point, but had an inner circle, uh, what was he trying to accomplish uh, in, with this ministry? What was, what was the purpose of having this, this circle? Foundational. Foundational? Say more about that. Oh, foundational. You're, I was thinking of <laughs> Are you a ventriloquist? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well it's Ephesians that says built on the foundation of the apostles. Yeah, yeah and, that's true. You know, they they were the ones that were personally appointed. Uh, apostle means one sent with a message. Yeah. Okay. So. Personally appointed, yes. Okay, foundational. He's gonna build his church off of this this foundation, turn his ministry over to them as well. Anything else? Yes. Yes, interact with. I mean, you can't interact with a crowd. Can't interact with a crowd. It's a one-way communication. 
Yeah, I, I like to say you can't make disciples in crowds. <laughs> uh, it doesn't happen. Um, what have we been trying to do uh, all these years? Uh, we make disciples by preaching at people. Now, I believe in preaching. I think it's valuable. I think it's important. But uh, Jesus obviously did not rely on preaching to make disciples. Even the greatest preacher that ever existed did not rely on his preaching to make disciples. And uh, so, um, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to come out of the crowd into relationship for a discipleship relationship to start. So, yeah. He was thinking long term. He's thinking long term, yeah. He could have easily built a large ministry based on it, his charisma yeah. and his power. Go, go on and read in this very text mm-hmm. what happens after this, the passage I just read. It talks about the crowds. It talks about his popularity. This was a high point of his ministry. But it was pretty clear that Jesus did not rely on those crowds. Because Why? Because he knew that they could be with him one moment and gone the next. Uh, that the crowds were fickle. It doesn't require anything of you to be in a crowd. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so in order to transfer the message, manner, and mission of Jesus, his heart, uh, can't do that to a crowd. You can do it when you're walking with each other over a period of time, like Jesus was uh, with his disciples. There's a very interesting verse in in John chapter 17, verse 4, uh, that just leaps out to me. Jesus, you know the John 17 passage, everybody knows that, the the high priestly prayer, as we call it, the last prayer for Jesus' disciples is, you know, even though I have have been sent, so send I you. But John 17, 4 says um, something to the effect, Father, I have completed the work that you have given me to do. And you read that and you say, well, you haven't even gone to the cross yet. What do you mean? This is a pre-cross statement. I thought that was the work (laughs) that you came to do. But he seemed to imply in that that preserving the now the 11, because Judas has already absented himself from that group, is the work he came to do, at least a major part of it. Because uh, he was turning the ministry over to them and uh, making that happen. Well, you know, do we live in that way? Even a, how many how many pastors do we have in this room? We got a few, not quite a few. Well, answer here, here's a conundrum for me. If the model of the way Jesus made disciples is so clear in Scripture, why haven't we adopted it in the church? It's harder. It's harder? Harder to do it that way. It's easy to stand up and preach. It's easy to stand and preach. It's harder to, to do it that way in the personal investment of lives. We get a bigger crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it's culturally impossible for us to do exactly what Jesus did. Well, of course. Yes, so right. Whatever we do is going to be in a cultural accommodation yeah. of some sort. Yeah. And then okay. the debate becomes what's the best model for our culture? Yeah. Ralph, um, come up and, and tell that little story that you always say. Ask you ask pastors about what's the last command. Yeah, I, I when my my dad went to New Orleans Theological Seminary and uh, he graduated and he got this ring and he took the ring with you know he wore that ring until he died and when he died they, we split up the stuff and I got the ring <laughs> and it has it has Matthew twenty eight nineteen twenty on the ring you know and so that verse has been a part of my life for a long time and it wasn't until you know I got involved in this discipleship thing that it began to s- s- uh, become aware I became aware that I somehow had been missing this all, for so long I hadn't really been making disciples um, and now I'm at that point where I go around and I ask pastors you know what's Jesus's last command. And they say, well, Matthew 28, 9, and they quote it. And everybody, all of them can quote How many disciples did Jesus have? Well, yeah, 12. Uh, can you name any of them? Well, yeah, I can. You know, and most pastors can name a few of those disciples, right? And I say, name yours. And there's this awkward silence. And I had that same awkward silence that when I first read Greg's stuff. That, you know, I didn't have any disciples. I had a couple of guys I spent a little extra time with. You know, some guy, pastors said, well, I play golf with Frank. You know, does that count? You know, no, that doesn't count. You're, you're not making disciples to make disciples. And if you're not making them to make disciples, you're not making fully obedient disciples because that's his last command. Let's go and make disciples. And I hadn't been intentional about it at all. And I fear that that's where most of us are. You know, we're just not there yet. And that's where we need to be. 
So you can see on your outline, I, I mentioned a, a couple of things uh, in terms of why Jesus was intentional in this way. One, internalization, the way to get his manner, message, and mission into a core of people was he had to expend maximum amount of time with them and follow them and, and have teachable moments. <laughs> you know, James and John sneak up beside him. When you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and left hand? Um, you don't even understand what the nature of the kingdom is about. So in those contexts, he's, had, he's got to, to, to change uh, people's mindsets. One of my favorite quotes comes from A.B. Bruce. Uh, he wrote a classic called The Training of the Twelves. I'm sure many of you have come across that. This careful, painstaking education of the disciples secured the teacher's influence on this world should be permanent that his kingdom should be founded on the rock of deep and indestructible convictions in the minds of a few, not on the shifting sands of superficial impressions in the minds of the many. I don't, when I read that, I was like, that quote just leapt off the page to me. And that word superficial, you can see I've highlighted, because I think that sort of describes the state, the nature of, of uh, the state of discipleship in our church today is we have a lot of superficiality. Comment back. Yeah. Question. Um, are these slides available? I can make them available. If, if you wouldn't want to write out your email, I could send them to you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just wanted to highlight uh, a little bit of that and focus on it. Uh, I think the one of the main reasons for uh, causes superficiality, and we can spend a lot of time on this, but I'm going to highlight one, and that is I think we've diverted our leaders, our pastoral leaders, from equipping. And we have, you know, we have this well-known text of scripture, um, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. I guess if there is a, any place that you would say there's a job description for the pastor, it would be this text that we quote it all the time. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers who are to do one thing, and that is to equip the saints uh, which, and if they do that, then they will do the work of ministry. And if they are doing the work of ministry, then the body of Christ will be built up. So, uh, the saints, we all know who the saints are. Ordinary garden variety believer is a saint. Uh, what are they supposed to do? Yeah, make this, yeah, okay. Um, so equip, the pastors, teachers, evangelists, uh, are to equip the saints, equip, prepare, train disciple the saints if they're being discipled they're to do the work of ministry if they're doing the work of ministry then the body of Christ will be built up my contention is what we have done is we have blotted this out and said you are to do this so we give the work of ministry over to the pastors and teachers to the evangelists to the prophets and we bypass the saints and uh that's the, that's the model of ministry that's in place in most of our congregations. There is, uh, you, know, we de- you know, pastors are to, pe- to preach and teach, certainly, to the, to the crowds. Um, and then we usually turn them into caregivers and say that the number one uh, emotional contract between pastor and people is, pastor, if something goes south in my life, I expect you to show up. <laughs> And we've got our pastors running around showing up to hospitals and counseling rooms and uh, responding to needs uh, when it's actually the body of Christ that's supposed to respond to most of those needs. Uh, and so we have, you know, we've cut out. And I, I would say if I were the evil one and wanted to divert our leaders so that un- the body of Christ would be undermined, that's a great way to do it because it sounds so high-minded for us to be available to everybody at all times in that way. So my, my first book uh, that I wrote was called The New Reformation, Returning the Ministry to the People of God. It's now called Unfinished Business, Returning the Ministry to the People of God. And it goes in great depth into this issue of what I call the equipping model of ministry versus the dependency model of ministry. And it's the dependency model of ministry that's in place in most of our churches and still taught in most of our seminaries. Here's what the role of, role of pastor is. So, uh, Leroy Iam said, disciples cannot be mass-produced. We cannot drop people into a program and see disciples emerge at the end of a production line. It takes time to make disciples. It takes individual personal attention. Yes, it's in some ways, as Bruce said, it's harder. 
uh, because of the individual personal tension and, and it takes longer uh, to do that. Well, we could spend more time on this. The second slide is about multiplication. Uh, ultimately, Jesus' goal was to multiply himself through his disciples. Um, I like the, the statement, we need to have enough vision to think small. Uh, Jesus had enough vision to think about us 20 centuries later, 21 centuries later, uh, because he focused on a few, we are here today. That's, that's vision. Uh, so, uh, I love this statement from Eugene Peterson. He, I think it was in his book called Traveling Light. He says, Jesus, it must be remembered, restricted nine-tenths of his ministry to 12 Jews because that was the only way to reach all Americans. <laughs> fill in in whatever ethnic group you want to fill in there. You know, All Japanese, all Koreans, all Romanians. Uh, that's, that's vision. We'll spend more time on this, but I just wanted to make sure that we at least touch base on this point uh, as, as we, we go along. Okay, let me move on to a next item here, and that's What's the difference between a program and a relationship? The programmatic approach, see if you've had, this has happened in your church. The, the practical of that is that uh, you've described it in general correctly, uh, that uh, yeah, the groups meet for a year, year and a quarter. Uh, they're all along, you are then invited to pray about who it is that God might be calling you into your group. You are then taking the initiative uh, after prayerful consideration. And God puts people on your hearts to go out and invite them to join you in that next leg of discipleship so that you then become the point person after having experienced a group and then forming that group and then taking people them through the process as well. There's a lot of you know, benefits that occur in people's lives as that all is going on. You're praying for people in your network of relationships that don't know Christ. You're discovering what your particular heartfelt ministry is, those kinds of things. But the heart of it is the reproduction. Uh, that is, is there. So they know they're going in. They know that going in. Point number five in the covenant and discipleship essentials is that uh, you will give serious consideration to investing your lives in at least two other people for the year following your completion of discipleship essentials. So I, I said it that way, you know, because people can't say, I will do this because, until they've actually experienced it. And then they find out how, how profoundly simple it is that they can do it because throughout the time you're rotating leadership. And uh, it's not just one leader leading people through the group. It's uh, each person takes a lesson. And you lead through. By the time you're done, they've led many, many times. Mm -hmm. And they uh, can say, oh, okay, I can do this. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, moving right along. In, the difference between a relationship and a program. Oftentimes in churches, we recognize we have a discipleship deficit. Uh, you have, usually recognize that. Why? Well, you have a hard time filling the elder slot. <laughs> uh, oh, we seem to be going back to the same people all the time. Or that fifth grade Sunday school class. Who are we going to get to teach that? Um, so you have a, a deficit of, of people who are willing to be engaged in ministry. And so you say, well, let's form a committee, study the problem. Let's assign to that committee the responsibility of going to find the latest and greatest program of discipleship out there. You scour the country, you adopt a program, you get up in front of the church and announce this new discipleship program that's going to solve all of our problems. You all sign up. The same 20% that sign up for everything else sign up for that. <laughs> and you're no further along than where you were before. Uh, does that sound familiar? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's what, what, what's kind of the usual approach. What we're saying is covenantal relationships one inviting others around the covenant. Time and the work of the Holy Spirit, of course, in the context of these, what we call the hothouses of the Holy Spirit, these microgroups, uh, and in the shaping of that, then disciples are produced out of that context, and then they reproduce uh, for others. So just uh, kind of for dialogue's purposes, what's, what's the difference between a program and a relationship? Commitment level? Okay, so share more about that. So programs, let's say we're going to have a 10-week discipleship program. And uh, so what's the characteristic of a 10-week? Well, we have this curriculum. We're going to go through this curriculum over 10 weeks. And when we get to the end of this curriculum, disciples are going to pop out the other end, right? Um, but you're all covering the same thing at the same speed in a kind of a synchronized way. 
and it's not usually very personal. It's not usually getting down to kind of where people live. And we're hoping that if we can in mass push people through a program, then we can create more disciples quickly. Anything that talks about creating disciples quickly, don't listen to it. <laughs> Run from it. People think they, they've got a microwave approach to disciple making. Yeah. So people went through a membership class. A person said, I didn't get to know anybody, but you're in your adult class. You're saying you break into groups so that people can get to know each other much, much more effectively. I, I note some things here on your, on your outline. Discipling relationships are marked by intimacy, whereas programs tend to focus on information. Um, so we are, in a lot of our ministries, whether it's Bible studies or other programs, we're about information transfer. If we can get certain kind of doctrinal content into people's heads, then that's what it's about. I, I served on church staff in Chicago, had a very marked Reformed theological perspective and it seemed to be that the important thing was if we can just get people to understand justification by faith alone and they can check that box, we know that they are good to go. And it wasn't about a transformation of life. It was about, okay, are they in? Have they prayed the right prayer? <laughs> you know, um, but not necessarily you know, the change of life. Discipling relationships involve full mutual participation of the participants, whereas programs uh, have one or a few who do on behalf of the many. So when you have these groups that are small, everybody's participating, everybody's contributing, you're doing your work, you're sharing your life, you're sharing your insights into Scripture, it's a very mutual. There's nobody sitting on the sidelines observing. Programs, you tend to do a lot of observing and not a whole lot of connection. Discipling relationships are customized to the unique growth process of individuals, whereas programs emphasize synchronization and regimentation. Maybe we can catch that door there, but it's going to make it hot, huh? Okay. 15. 15 minutes. You can handle 15 more minutes? Okay. Uh, so, customized. Um, look around the room. I don't see any two people that look the same in this room. My guess is we don't have any two people that have the same spiritual journey story. Our learning styles are different from one another. Uh, the issues of discipleship that we're dealing with are probably unique to our own journey. Our areas of potential besetting sins are probably different from one another. Unless you create a customized environment uh, in which we can really hear their story, people's stories and know each other at, at this ground roots level, then I don't think transformation takes place. Programs don't allow that uh, to happen. And then finally, discipline relationships focus on accountability around life change, whereas programs focus accountability around content. Um, so maybe we've, we've said enough about that. But uh, it's not about just filling in blanks in a workbook. It's not just memorizing scripture. It's bringing your life uh, together with, with others and identifying those areas where you know you need to work on. It's not about somebody examining you. This is not about accountability that says, I'm going to grill Paul. <laughs> Uh, but it's about Paul having an atmosphere of trust and openness so you say, I feel free to share, you know, would you pray for me about this? I, it's been a long-standing issue in my life in Christ, and I need, to, I need to have people come alongside me with that. So let me, uh, um, you have a letter. So there's a letter at the bottom of your page that says a letter from Jane, I forgot to change the that heading because it was actually a letter from Barb Calv Skinner. <laughs> um, I used to protect her identity, but uh, I don't anymore. Um, my first ministry position out of seminary was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Any Pennsylvanians here in the room? Uh -huh. uh, so I was serving a church right in the middle of the University of Pittsburgh. The church was called Belfield Presbyterian Church. I was the college pastor there on the, on the church staff. And we had a you know, pretty significant college ministry going. Uh, we had a group of about 40 leaders that met every Wednesday night at 7.30. Then we had our outreach ministry at 9 o'clock on Wednesday nights. About 300 college students would show up to that. Those 40 leaders would lead small groups on campus. And uh, it was a, a pretty powerful time in my life in ministry. 
I left uh, Pittsburgh in, I think it was March of 1977, moved back to Southern California. I think it was forecast to be the coldest winter of that century, so we had a heard a call of God um, <laughs> to, to go to California. Our, our daughter had been born there, and we were kind of anxious to get back near, near family. Um, so that's March of 1977. April of 1985, I get this letter uh, from a woman who had been involved in this college ministry. She was a freshman moving into the college ministry as I was exiting. So she was coming in, I was going out. I don't know if I ever had a conversation with her at all uh, during that time. So let me just read this letter to you. And as I'm reading, uh, take your pens out and perhaps circle uh, some disciple-making principles or practices that you see in this letter. Because uh, she so well articulates the, exactly the things that, that we're talking about here. My, my name is uh, Barb Skinner. That's our married name now. Uh, the only value I found in Facebook <laughs> of real enduring quality is to touch base with people I hadn't been in touch with for a long time. And this was, this was one of them. I was starting to get involved in uh, the church fellowship when you were called to California. I was so impressed with the few times I heard you teach. But more than that, or anything else, I was drawn into the love that the fellowship had for you and each other. To an outsider at the time, like myself, one saw such a deep love that I know was prayerfully developed. The term discipleship was living. Long after you left, your leadership materials were being used. I was trained by, and she mentions three significant people on our leadership team, uh, who were a part of the inner circle that I admired and the Lord used in my life. After graduating from the University of Pittsburgh with degrees in child development and child care, my husband and I were led to start a Christian center in Pennsylvania. The Lord has done miracles step by step in this ministry, and we are so excited about it. We started with a preschool program, and now we have started a Christian school, adding a grade each year. We feel that by applying biblical principles and models that we can minister to families in the area. In any case, because of the model I experienced at Pitt, the center is focusing on small, quality, long-term relationships with families. Now, the reason I'm writing, I realize now the commitment you had at Pitt and how much time you and effort you so selflessly poured into those guys. I appreciate you and your gifts because I feel like I am the fruit of your fruit. And praise the Lord, more fruit is being produced. I appreciate your model, Christ's model, because of our ministry and how easy it is to give yourself out and spread too thin and not accomplish much. If you ever question the Lord about your work at Pitt, please think of me and know how much the Lord used you there. So I just wanted to say thanks. I guess you will understand this letter. I just pray that someday someone will write to me expressing their faith in the Lord and that perhaps my obedience will be related to their growth. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I remember opening that letter and reading it sitting at my desk at church. And part of me said, Okay, Lord, you can take me now <laughs> uh, to get that kind of eight years after the fact. I mean, that is just wonderful. What did um, what'd you see? What were some of the disciple-making principles that you saw her re-articulating here in this letter? Love. 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 Love was prayerfully developed. Yeah. Reproduction. Fruit of your fruit. Um, and more fruit is being produced. Trained in an inner circle. Trained in an inner circle. Mm -hmm. When we think of inner circles, what oftentimes do we think? Clicks. Clicks. Yeah. Being kept out of an inner circle. Right. This was the inner circle that drew her in and brought her in, which was wonderful. Christ model. Christ model. Yeah, she saw that, uh, that personal investment. Prayerfully uh, developed. Uh, so... Yes, it was prayerfully developed. Powerful time. Long-term relationships. Long-term relationships. Small quality long-term relationships. I think that's a good mantra, really, to remember. Small quality long-term relationships and investment uh, in a few. And then I thought she kind of captured the pastoral dilemma quite well. How easy it is to give yourself out and spread too thin and not accomplish much. I thought, wow, if that wasn't what many pastors experience, running hither and yon <laughs> to, to catch everything that's coming down the pike and feel like 
gosh, what do I have to show for after it's done? So there's, um, I, I personally, and this continues to be true because I continue doing discipleship groups, uh, I've never felt more like a pastor than when I walked out of my discipleship group. I felt like, wow, what a joy and privilege it was to be here today. Where else could these men have shared what they shared at this moment and what we shared together? Whether it was insight into scripture or application of their life or carrying each other's burdens. Um, it was uh, generally, you know, usually quite life-giving. Okay. Um, the last part of your outline focuses in on kind of the, the shift in dynamic from a one-to-one discipling to a, a group of three. I'm not sure if we need to go into that that much more. We only have about five minutes left in our session uh, here today. Now, we developed this track, and I think they're tracks because you're supposed to run on the same track. <laughs> uh, I, and I don't know if you're going to be flitting from one to another or, uh, or staying with us uh, through this, this track. I think the intention was potentially to kind of follow through with something. Um, so we built one topic upon another. Uh, so laying the foundation this session, next session would be on, let's go into these microgroups and talk about the, the qualities of transformation that really make for that life change um, that's there. Uh, Ralph is going to share uh, the Camarillo transformational story uh, early uh, tomorrow morning in terms of his um, session there, which I think you will be all inspired by in terms of you know, going from zero discipleship groups to 130 in five years. Pretty, pretty major transformation in, in terms of the, what happened in that congregation. Uh, we'll talk about curriculum as important in the context of the discipleship container. You need a curriculum to put into the container to, to have a tool, so it's a transferable tool that somebody else um, can use. And then we're going to have a session. Our last session is kind of putting it all together using an image actually borrowed from Jim Putman uh, in terms of the the successful journey and how you put all this all this together. So that's where we're going with uh, with this whole thing. Let me just pause at this point and see if got any more questions, comments. I have a little closing video for you to watch to hopefully be inspired by as well. So it posed with the question of being in, of having one person saying he would come in, but only as a single. Would you take it or not? Uh, would I do a one-to-one -one relationship? Um, well, probably if, if I can't quite find someone else. One of the things that oftentimes we do is we'll invite somebody to join us and they say, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll join you in that. Uh, and then you, you say to that person, well, maybe you have somebody in your network of relationships that you would suggest you might be a good person. So it may not be your invitation, but it may be you know, their invitation to somebody to join you as well. So it doesn't happen to be, be just that. So, um, but Preferably, obviously, the three or four is, is, in terms of the dynamic, has been, in my experience, a much better dynamic. Yeah. How many Paul. groups would you work with at one time? How many groups would I work with? Like, Ralph should answer that question. <laughs> this, this is the master discipler. You know, I've, I've created the concepts. I've, I've done it quite effectively over the years. Uh, but I've never seen somebody who could see a congregation transformed like this guy did. So how many groups do you have going, Ralph, at this point? I currently have five. Five groups, okay. Is that a max? Is uh, it, it would, well, he's retired now, so he's not, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Six days, yeah. yeah all right. they, don't all start, they don't all start at the same time. I say I have five, but, uh, you know, I started one, and then, you know, some guys came and said, hey, we want to start Come one. Come up here. Come here. I started, I started one when I first went to Washington. I went to the pastor of the church that I now go to as an attender. My son-in-law uh, son is on staff there. It's a very large church, about 2,500 members. And uh, I went to the senior pastor. And I said, this is what we did in Camarillo. I'd like to do some discipleship here. Would this be all right? He said, that'd be great, but I want to be in your first group. <laughs> so, okay, so you're in the first group. So we got, you know, two other guys, and we started a group. Then one of the other pastors said, hey, I want to do this too. And so I, we said, okay, we've got to come up with another group. And then I went to the leadership uh, uh, summit. summit, you know, and the pastors from all over the community were there. And another guy I had given a book to years before comes to me and said, hey, you got to take my, I don't know how to do this discipleship thing. I've read the books and everything, but you got to, you got to start a group and let me and show me how to do it. Okay, do you know somebody? Well, yeah, I know the. So we got another group one, and then there was another group that started up, and then 
Um, then the first group finished. And so now I only meet with them every three weeks, every third week or so. We, we're doing some other stuff, but we, we still meet, but we don't meet every week. So I started the fifth group, so I've got a fifth group going now. So, yeah, and I'm retired. I can do the thing I want to do most, you know, so I, I we love them. But um, everybody's different. You yeah. do what you, what God allows. When I was a, when I was a pastor, the maximum I had was two. Uh, with other other responsibilities, but yeah. Well, the cool thing is a pastor can do this. He can do a group, and he's got the group. And then, but you, when you, when the pastor does it, then that makes it right for everybody to do. Yes. If the pastor doesn't do it, you know, it's like Jesus delegating discipleship. Didn't happen. Right. You don't do that. If the senior pastor does it, then everybody, this is this is good. Everybody can do it, and they do. And and for the pastor, it's just it's a you know it's an hour and a half a week. You can do that. Uh, but what it does is it sets up this thing for everybody else to start doing this thing now, and nobody has an excuse because a pastor's doing it. So, you know, and all the groups you use the discipleship essentials. I use the discipleship essentials as the, as the basic thing. It's it's a great curriculum. It works. It and it lends itself to the multiplication component. It's built in, so it works so well. And I've I've been through. I've got. I think I've done 15 groups now, and I did a group. Two days ago, and I learned something new. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just great. So, you never, you never quit learning. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. That message was from the Global Discipleship Initiative track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download the free PDF that summarizes exactly how they teach people to do the microgroups that are made up of three or four people. Download it at discipleship.org/global. That's discipleship.org/global. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.